Good morning, everyone. It is so good to see so many of you. I'm glad that I was able to bring my family along this time as well. Thank you for welcoming and being very hospitable to us. Please turn in your Bibles to Paul's first letter to Timothy. We'll be looking at the beginning of chapter 6 this morning. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 1 through 2. Let me read God's word to you. Let all who are under a yoke as bondservants regard their own masters as worthy of all honor, so that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. Those who have believing masters must not be disrespectful on the ground that they are brothers, rather They must serve all the better, since those who benefit by their good service are believers and beloved. Let's pray. Father, we are so grateful this morning to come before your word. We come to your word because in your word is life. We come to your word because in your word is truth. We come to your word because in your word is your autobiography of yourself. We learn about you, the things that you love and the things that you hate. It is in your word that you also reveal to us our sin. You reveal to us that there is no other way to be reconciled to you apart from your son and his death on the cross. Father, I ask that you would use me as an instrument in your hand this morning to accurately exposit the truth of your word before us, so that at the end of uh, of this day, your name and your name alone would receive the glory. Father, I pray for the hearts of those here today who do not know you yet. Use this word, Father, to break their hearts of stone, to open their blind eyes, to open their deaf ears, so that they would see Christ and him alone as their only hope for salvation. We ask this in your name. Amen. If you were asked to explain the purpose and the motivation for your employment, what answer would you give? What is the reason why we wake up in the mornings, get ready, and get in our cars, or some of you in your pajamas, turn on your laptops as you work from home? What is the reason and motivation for doing so? What is the purpose of our vocation? What is the purpose of the jobs that the Lord has provided for us? Is it simply one of those necessary evils of life that we need to do it because we have bills that come at the end of the month and they must be paid and therefore we go to work in order to receive a paycheck to take care of those bills. Or perhaps we just view our employment and our jobs as a way to move up in life, as a way to save up for a better car, a better house, a better way of life. And so our job and our employment is just that stepping stone to keep up with the Joneses around us. What is the purpose of our employment? 
In fact, it is so sad that most of the time in our interactions, even among believers, when speaking of our jobs and our vocations, we usually speak of them negatively. In fact, one would think that the reason why we speak of them negatively is because we often believe that our work and our employment was a result of the fall. However, brothers and sisters, in our study of the Bible, you realize that work and vocation came before the fall came into the picture. In fact, the first task and the first responsibility and the first job, if you will, was given to Adam way before sin enters the picture altogether. And therefore, the Word of God actually speaks very highly of our employment. It speaks highly of our vocation. It speaks highly of our opportunity to use our gifts and our abilities in service of others. In fact, the reformers would often speak very highly of our vocation as well, often describing it as our sacred duty. So the question is, why and how should we view our employment? If I went and as far as to say, have you considered your job as a ministry opportunity, would that confuse you? You might say, well, I don't work for a nonprofit like you do, and so how can I view my job as ministry? And so we often think to separate the two. The things that happen at church is my ministry, and yet the things that happen on Monday through Friday, well, that's a little bit different. That's not ministry altogether. Or what would you say to someone who would tell you that you should view your job and your employment as worship. Would that confuse you? Do the two ideas just kind of can't even come together and reconcile in your mind that your employment and your vocation should be and can be viewed as worship of our God? And so even though our jobs are difficult, and yes, the result of the fall brings sweat and tiredness and weeds in the ground that we must deal with, yet the Word of God speaks highly of our employment. And therefore, Apostle Paul, in writing to Timothy and addressing the church in Ephesus, is also bringing up this sub subject of employment. And in fact, he's going to go as far as to say that this is so important that he would tell Timothy to teach and urge these things at the end of verse 2. So important was this that we see that throughout New Testament letters, both Paul and Peter and other writers to the churches would always mention employment, both to the bondservants and to the masters. This was a subject of great importance. In fact, we will see in our passage before us this morning that Paul views believers' vocation as an evangelism opportunity. Brother Matt mentioned earlier that you and the church want to enhance your outreach and uh, work on that third arm of your church. Well, according to Apostle Paul, our vocations and our employment is one part of that outreach, one part of that external testimony as believers. 
And so to help us work through this text this morning, I believe there's three crucial questions that we should answer in this short and yet very convicting and very important passage for us this morning. Question number one, we need to answer the who question. Who is Apostle Paul referring to when he's writing this specific section? Number two, the what question. What is he asking them to do? What is he commanding them to do? And finally, we'll conclude this morning by answering third question, the why. Why is he asking them to do what he is asking them to do? The who, the what, and the why. Let's begin with the who question in verse 1. It is helpful for us to understand this when we understand who he's addressing. From verse 1, we read that Apostle Paul is saying, Let all who are under a yoke as bondservants. Paul is speaking to bondservants. Who are these bondservants? The Greek word should be familiar to you by now. The Greek word is doulos. He's speaking to slaves quite literally. In fact, the translation bondservant kind of softens the edges a little bit. The literal translation is, let all who are under yoke as slaves. So Paul is referring to slaves. And from the start, we have a little bit of a challenge. Because when we're reading about slaves, we often use our modern-day Western society understanding and historical uh, experience of slavery here in the States to try to understand who these people are who he's talking to. However, the Greco-Roman slaves differed significantly from that of our experience in our country. At the time of writing to the church of Ephesus, it is estimated that one-third of the Greco-Roman society was composed of a slave and master relationship. It was not based on the uh, color of one's skin or one's ethnicity. Slavery was a, a common thing often based out of economical necessity. In fact, it is common for us to read through historical writings of people voluntarily entering into slavery in order to receive something out of it. For example, uh, when banks were not available or credit cards were not available, one would actually step into a slave and master relationship in order to gain something. For example, he needed some money to purchase land. He said, I will serve you for two years in order to receive this amount and purchase the land that I need. Or one would use it as a school of trade, if you will, as education, where he would sign up for a stonemason and say, I will serve you for two years as your slave, as your bondservant, and then in return, can you teach me all your trade. Teach me all the the things about being a stonemason. And so this would happen as a voluntary interaction, often based out of economical necessity. In fact, this is quite different from the slavery that we are familiar. And to even see the distinction that Apostle Paul is making here, I want you to see the other form of slavery which he is denouncing at the beginning of the letter. If you just turn a few pages in your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 1, in verses 9 through 10, there's a specific slavery that Paul denounces. 
And he says, 1 Timothy 1, 9-10, Understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless, the disobedient, for the ungodly, the sinners, for murderers, the sexually immoral, enslavers, liars, and perjurers. And so that type of slavery is a different word altogether, referred to people who would actually sell people into slavery. People who would trade others. So the slavery that Paul is denouncing is one that was probably very similar to that in our country. But the slavery that he's speaking of in our passage in, verse, in chapter 6 is one of a yoke. Yoke is a contract almost in which people would enter voluntarily and often would have opportunities to gain their freedom and to work themselves out of this contract as well. Philip Ryken would say, because slaves were members of household, most of them had a fair degree of security with opportunities for advancement. Many earned a living or worked in partnership with their owners. Some actually held positions of authority within the business or administrative posts and the lower, lower levels of government. Most importantly of all, slavery was not necessarily permanent because there were a variety of ways for slaves to win or buy their freedom. In fact, in your study of 1 Corinthians, you probably are familiar with Apostle Paul saying, if you have the means and the ability to buy your freedom, do so. So in other words, this slavery is actually resembled more of what our employment looks like today. Whether you know it or not, if you're employed, you are actually under yoke to your masters. You have agreed to a contract that for an exchange of your services and talents and abilities, they will repay you with monetary means. And therefore, maybe not necessarily looking exactly like the master and slave relationship in the time in the church of Ephesus. However, our employment is very similar. And therefore, this answers the first question of who Paul is writing to. He's writing to all the bond servants, all the slaves who have a master, all of them who are under yoke, under obligation to those over them, all of them who have entered under contract in order for them to serve those people. That brings us to the second question in our text, the what. We know who he's talking to. What is he asking them to do? We see at the end of verse 1, he tells all the bondservants to regard their own masters as worthy of all honor. Paul's command to the bondservants is to honor their masters. Paul is commanding them to show respect to them. This is not the first time honor is brought up. In fact, just one chapter prior to this, this uh, Greek word "tme" was already used by Paul multiple times. In 1 Timothy 5.3, he would say to the church to honor the widows who are among you. And then in 1 Timothy 5.17, he would give command about the elders and he would say, let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor. The same Greek word. In other words, Paul is saying 
that we as bond servants are to show the same honor to our masters, to our employees, to our bosses, as we are to show to the godly widows in the church. The same honor that you are commanded to show to the elders in your congregation is the same honor commanded for us as believers to show to our masters, to those people under whose yoke we currently find ourselves in. Edmund Hebert would describe this honor as an inner attitude of genuine respect for their masters, which finds outward expression both in word, manner, and conduct. This was an important issue for Timothy to write, or for Paul to write to Timothy. The church of Ephesus most likely consisted of a lot of slaves who have just come to know the Lord as, as their Savior, as their Master. And so they're trying to figure out, what is my new standing in Christ have to do with my current yoke, with my current responsibility, with my current situation in my relationship to my earthly master? They're trying to wrestle with this idea, if I have a heavenly master now, what does that do to my earthly master with whom I made a contract, with whom I'm uh, under a bond for two or three or however many more years in order to work through that responsibility that we agreed on? And in fact, there was perhaps a temptation now to rebel against that. There was perhaps a temptation to say, if I am free in Christ and there's no longer a slave or a Jew or a Greek, perhaps my bond to my master is no longer important. In fact, perhaps the Bible gives me freedom to remove myself from that contract, to remove myself from that yoke. And so Edmund Hebert would continue to say in his commentary, the very difficulty of their position made it necessary that Timothy direct special instruction to them. The dignity and spiritual freedom which they enjoy in Christian assembly must not blind them to the fact that Christianity did not liberate them from their obligations arising out of their status in a pagan society. They must be warned against any abuse of Christian liberty and brotherhood. Brothers and sisters, Apostle Paul here in our passage and in all the mentions of master and slave relationship, he's never once advocating for it or speaking against it. Rather, his focus is always at our hearts. He's not trying to rah-rah the troops to start an abolition movement, to go against the societal norms of that day. Rather, he's saying, wherever you find yourself, whether master or slave, if you're now a believer, you must pay attention to your heart. You must pay attention to the actions and the attitudes that come out of your heart. John MacArthur would say, when Christ comes, he does not come to overturn social order. He comes to change the heart. When apostles speak, they speak not to overturn, not to overturn the social order, but to change the heart. 
Apostle Paul here is directing our attention towards our attitudes as believers towards our masters, our employers, our bosses. Robert Yarbo would say, like other New Testament figures, including Jesus, Paul's immediate goal in ministry was not revolutionary change of the social order. It was preaching and teaching the gospel. Philip Ryken says, The fact is, however, that the New Testament never tells slaves to throw off their own yokes. They can go pray to God for deliverance, of course. They can also purchase their freedom through legal means, as Apostle Paul encouraged them to do in 1 Corinthians 7. Here's a fascinating thing. This was not just something that Apostle Paul wrote about. This was actually something that Apostle Paul lived out. If you had a chance to study his letter to Philemon, you find out a very interesting case of a master and slave relationship that took place. I highly encourage you, it's only one chapter, or a really a fast read, but also very sanctifying read as we learn a lot about the power of the gospel. There, Apostle Paul is writing to Philemon, who was a master and who had a slave whose name was Onesimus. And for some reason that we are not told to, Onesimus ran away from Philemon. He ran away from his master. And he came, Onesimus came across Paul, who was in prison at Rome at that time. And through Paul's ministry, most likely while both of them were in prison, Paul actually was a, God used Paul to convert Onesimus. Onesimus became a believer. And so here's a perfect opportunity for Paul to say, you know what? You ran away from your master. Who cares? You are freed in Christ now. In fact, Paul would say, you are very useful to me. Onesimus became, started using his gifts and his abilities to serve Apostle Paul. And Paul could have easily disregarded the social norms of that day and just said, you know what? You stay with me. You are now my fellow brother in the Lord. Let's restart over. But that's not why this letter is written. Paul is actually writing to Philemon saying, I have your bondservant. And even though he's of great value to me, and even though the Lord chose to convert him here, I am sending him back to you. He's returning Onesimus back to Philemon. Because Paul understood that the attitudes of our heart and how we live out the gospel is a lot more important. And therefore, he wanted Onesimus to show honor to Philemon. He wanted for him to go over there and perhaps even apologize for what he did. And then Paul would go on as far as to say, you know what? And if he caused you any financial loss, charge it to my account. So for Apostle Paul, this master-slave relationship, this opportunity to honor your masters, to honor your boss, it was not just something that he only wrote about, but this is something that he actually lived out. When he would return Onesimus and say, you know, Onesimus, it is honoring to your master and it is honoring to God if you go and finish your employment. If you go and return to the one with whom you made a contract with. And therefore, I'm sending you back and make sure you go and honor your master. You see, it's often easy for us to say, Vitaly, you don't know my boss. 
you don't know the person that I'm under. You don't know how unchristian she is or how unchristian he is. You don't know what they make me do, how much I have to listen to their liberal ideas every day, how much they always just make me struggle and wrestle with my own convictions on a daily basis. Surely, Vitaly, you, you are employed in a nonprofit organization. It's easy for you. I am in the real world. I'm interacting with real sinners. And yet, the Word of God doesn't differentiate whether you have a good master or an evil master. The command is for us to honor all masters. When Apostle Paul uh, is writing uh, to Timothy, he's not saying, you know what, this is only true for believing. No, he said, you know what, those who have believing masters must not be disrespectful on the ground that they are brothers. In fact, he would say, if you have a believing master, you should honor them even more. But this command is actually focused on, first of all, on unbelieving masters. If you have a pagan master, if you have a pagan employee, your job is not to run away and change employment as soon as possible. Your job is to honor them. Your job is to show them the same honor as you are to show your elders, as you are to show the widows in the church. In 1 Peter 2, Apostle Peter would write, Honor everyone, fear God, honor the emperor, servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only the good and the gentle, but also the unjust as well. Brothers and sisters, the command given to us is that we must show honor to the unbelieving masters. And if some of you are so privileged and blessed to have a believing master, you should do so even more. Don't use it as an excuse to take your lunch 15 minutes a little bit later and tell him, you know what, he'll understand. I was doing my devotions. I was uh, listening to Pastor Vitali's sermon again. Don't take advantage of your master because he's a brother or sister in the Lord. But rather, so much more, he would say in verse 2 of our passage. Honor them even more because you are working towards a common goal. You are honoring the heavenly Father. Some of you might say, you know what, Vitaly, this is great, but I'm a stay-at-home mother. Thankfully, I, I don't really have a, a master over me. And uh, therefore, you know, how does this apply to me? Some of you might say, I'm a student in school. Uh, or, you know, I currently am not employed how does this text refer to me? And that's where we understand that the ultimate point of this honor is not just towards our masters, but our vocation has a greater master that we need to, uh, that we need to honor and respect. And that is ultimately God. In Colossians chapter 3, we read, Bondservants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. 
Brothers and sisters, the ultimate motivation for our honor is not because we are doing it for them, but because we're doing it for God. When we are serving even the pagan masters over us, when we are uh, serving and honoring our pagan professors and teachers, when we are stay-at-home moms and we're serving our children and our husband during that time, you are not doing it ultimately for them. You are doing it for the Lord. And I don't know if you caught this at the end of the passage in Colossians there. You will get rewards in glory, not just for the ministry that happens in the church. You will get rewards for your service as bondservants. The context of the passage, he's addressing bondservants. And he says, serve them as unto the Lord. And the reason for that, knowing that from the Lord, you will receive the inheritance as your reward. God will bless you and reward you for how you served your masters, for how you served your employees. Not just the good ones and the gentle ones, but also the wicked and the harsh and the unjust ones. Therefore, brothers and sisters... What is the command Paul is telling the bondservants and all of us today? Honor your masters. Do so not just for them, but do it as unto the Lord. However, Apostle Paul is very good to not leave us without answering the ultimate questions of why we must do so. So we come to the third and final point, why? Why should we as bondservants who are under yoke, under contract, why should we show honor to our masters? 1 Timothy 6.1, at the end of verse 1, gives us the answer to that. So that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. Let me read this again because I hope this hits you with a sobering realization as it did me in my study so that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. The reason why your attitude towards your employee is of great importance is because at the end of the day, what's at stake is the testimony of our God's name and the teaching of God's word. These are not trivial matters that Apostle Paul is mentioning here in this letter. According to the Word of God, what happens in our workplace as we serve under our master has a direct implication to the perception of God's name and the gospel message around us. Your testimony is at stake. How you honor your master is either painting a glorious picture of the God that you serve, or it's actually blaspheming his name. Your attitude towards your masters, your employees, is either further establishing the truth of the gospel message that you proclaim to believe, or it's discrediting the truth of the gospel message. Let's see, he mentions two things. Let's look at them separately. First, God's name. Apostle Paul says, so that the name of God 
would not be reviled. Brothers and sisters, God cares about his reputation. I hope throughout the study of the Word of God, not just the New Testament, but also the Old Testament, you see a great theme that God cares about his name. He will not allow his name to be defamed. He will not allow his name to be blasphemed. And so we read in Isaiah 52, after Israel would get into captivity time and time again, God would say in Isaiah 52, 5, Now therefore, what have I here, declares the Lord, seeing that my people are taken away for nothing, their rulers wail, declares the Lord, and continually, all the day, my name is being despised. When Israel would disobey God, And the punishment for breaking the covenant, for worshiping fake idols would be captivity for them. God said, at the end of the day, what's happening here is you're dishonoring my name amongst the nations around you. When the foreign nations see you in captivity, they're actually seeing my name being dishonored. My name is being blasphemed. God cares for his name. One commentator would say, the name of God, which stands for God's character, his holiness, love, justice, and all the rest of his divine attributes. Since God's people bear God's name, the way they work is a reflection on God himself. God's name was under attack because the sins of his people were an embarrassment to him. The nation saw what was happening in Israel, and God was being slandered as a result. I've preached here enough times now where you've heard me mention this example multiple times concerning my middle name. In the Slavic and the culture, in in Russian and Ukrainian names, our middle names were not just, you know, creative names that parents find on Google, but our middle names were actually given to us uh, because of our fathers. So my middle name is Alexander because my father is Alexander. And therefore, wherever I went, whether uh, doing good or bad, I always uh, bore the name of my father as Vitaly Alexandrovich, meaning Vitaly belonging to Alexander. So if I did good, I bared my father's name. When I did bad, I also blasphemed and dishonored my father's name. Brothers and sisters, how much more so if we're bearing the name of Christ? If we're calling ourselves Christians, what happens at your work, in your employment, in your education, and at home as a stay-at-home mother, you are either bringing honor to the name of God or you are dishonoring God. You are blaspheming his name if you're not honoring the masters who are over you. Secondly, Paul would say not only the name of God would be reviled if you don't honor your masters, but also the teaching. The Greek word there is synonymous to the doctrine. In other words, the gospel message, that which is proclaimed in your congregation. And therefore, when you are dishonoring your masters, you are saying that the message, the truth which you proclaim and hear and read is of no value. Because it is this very truth that is telling you to honor your masters, to show honor to them. In fact, this is something that comes up time and time again in the letter of First Timothy. 
In chapter 2, verses 3 and 4, Paul would command Timothy and the believers in Ephesus to live a peaceful and quiet life. Why? This is good and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. In other words, the way we live has a direct impact to the people coming to the knowledge of God and of the truth. Our lives have an impact to the truth that is proclaimed. In Timothy 3.7, when selecting elders, do you guys remember this? Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders. Did you catch this? One of the requirements for a godly elder is that he must be well thought of by the pastoral committee? Well, yes, but that's not what it says here. That he must be well thought of by the members of the church? Well, yes, but that's not the qualification given in 1 Timothy. One of the qualifications for a godly elder is that he must be thought well of by the outsiders, by the unbelievers. And therefore, what you do at work matters. The way you show honor and the way you live has a direct impact on your testimony. Why? So that he may not fall into disgrace, into the snare of the devil. Further, I'm going to conclude with the following verse. Please turn in your Bibles to Titus chapter 2. This was so important for Apostle Paul that he would repeat the same command multiple times in multiple letters in writing to different churches. When writing to Titus, once again speaking about bondservants, look what Apostle Paul would tell Titus. He would say in Titus 2.9, Bondservants are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith, so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine, the same Greek word as in our passage, the doctrine of God, our Savior. Do you see what Paul is telling Titus? That your attitude at work has the wonderful opportunity to either adorn the gospel message or to defame it and discredit it. Your honor to your master, to your employee, to your boss, will either make the gospel message that much more precious or it will dishonor it and defame it to those around you. Our sisters, that is a weighty, responsibility that is a weighty command and therefore as your church further goes out on this opportunity to to study the word of god and to see how you can serve better in the outreach one of the best ways that we can do outreach to the glory of god begins in your workplace after all some of you spend 40 60 80 hours in your workplace And therefore, are you using your workplace as an opportunity to adorn the gospel message and to honor your masters because ultimately you are honoring God? Or are you saying, you know what, what happens Monday through Friday doesn't matter as long as I'm a good Christian on Sunday. 
Those two don't work. If you're going to be a God-honoring Christian on Sunday, then you need to be a God-honoring and master-honoring Christian Monday through Friday as well. Why? So that the name of God may not be defiled. Why? So that the gospel message may not be discredited. That is the command before us. It's a simple message, only two verses, but it's convicting and full of application. And I pray that each one of us here in this room today would serve our masters with honor so that we would bring glory to our ultimate master, our God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your word that addresses this important matter of of employment. Thank you for giving us places of work where we can use the gifts and abilities that you have given us to the glory of your name. Father, I, I pray for those who have difficult masters, difficult employees. Lord, may we still love them and show them honor. May our attitude towards them be the adorning of the gospel in which we show them grace and mercy even when they don't deserve it. And if some of us are so blessed to have a wonderful master who might even be a believer, how much more so should that be our attitude towards them? May we not neglect this opportunity for testimony, this opportunity for witness, this opportunity to bring glory and honor because the reputation of your name is at stake. The reputation of the word of God, the gospel message, the doctrine is at stake. And therefore, may we show honor that is due our masters because we ultimately know that our master is in glory and then we are waiting his return and we know that it is pleasing to you when we do that. We ask this in your name. Amen.